It's good to see everyone this morning. I don't have as much time as usual, so I decided to cut something, and it was the pleasantries. Let's, let's pray. I'm going to be entirely unpleasant this morning. Jesus, we welcome you in this place. You um, are more present than we are, and we acknowledge that. And we ask that you would center us in your presence this morning, that you would um, awaken us to um, you, the God who's already here. And so um, we need your help as we're thinking through this text this morning. And so come speak right now because your servants are listening. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in Revelation. Come on up. Hello, Myatts. Um, Revelation 10. I'll back up a little bit, too. That way, that way I'm not just, like, looming over you guys. Uh, we'll be in Revelation 10 and 11 this morning. Uh, we tend to think of, like, the climax of a book or a movie or something as being primarily where in the book or the movie, towards the, the end of the book or the movie, right? You know, whether it's, like, the final scene of a movie right before it cuts to black and you walk out of the theater thinking, oh, yeah, that's gave me something to think about, or like climactic chapters in a book. But um, the biblical writers, a lot of times, um, would, um, whether it's Lamentations or the Gospels, it's all over Scripture, would put the climax, the meaning, the significance of something right smack dab in the middle of something. It would build up like to a mountain top, and then it'll everything will flow down the other side. Well, we are um, actually... You're in luck if, you were, if it's your first time here or if you haven't been here in a little while. We're smack dab in the middle of Revelation this morning. And so the entire book of Revelation has been building up to this point, And everything else is going to flow down the other side of this. And so if you've ever thought, I wish somebody would just tell me what the book of Revelation is about. Like, and if they could do it in one sentence, that would be really nice. You're in luck today. Your wish is going to come true. Um, that's what we're going to aim to do. So uh, Revelation 10 and 11 is where we are. Um, before we read our text for today, we need to recap where we've been. And so we're going to do this brutally quickly. Um, we just don't have time for to go into detail much. But Revelation's telling um, something of a story, if we remember. Revelation chapter 1, of course, um, tells of John. Um, he's political of a prisoner of Rome. He's on exile on the island of Patmos. He sees Jesus, Jesus, all-powerful, unstoppable, Jesus, the crucified one. And then uh, chapters two and three, this Jesus addresses seven churches. Um, He's giving nods and giving direction and instruction. And by choosing a um, significant number, seven, um, symbolic number, um, it's a signal to all of us who happen to be reading it, anyone who happened to happens to pick up this document, that um, seven, it's whole, complete. So whenever and wherever people who follow Jesus are reading this, it's addressing you too. It's not just limited to these ancient communities. It's everyone everywhere who's following Jesus. Then chapter four, John gets drawn into God's dimension of reality. He gets to go behind the curtain. He gets to go backstage of the universe. He, he sees endless worship taking place in this like massive throne with a mysterious someone sitting on that throne. And then in chapter five, we hit the roadblock, right? We hit a locked safe. 
in chapter 5, he sees a scroll, this really important scroll, in the hand of the one sitting on the throne. And it seems like we said that this scroll, um, based on textual analysis of uh, Daniel and a couple other places in the Old Testament, that this scroll is God's plan. It's to save the world. It's a really important scroll. He sees it, but it's perfectly sealed up. Nobody can figure out how is God going to save the world? How is God going to bring the long-anticipated kingdom, his rule and reign to the world? Um, God's purposes are just tightly sealed up. No one can access them. But then if you remember in chapter 5, uh, there's a, a revelation, a, a revealing that there, uh, there is one who can open these purposes. It's the slaughtered lamb, the, the, the lamb who's slaughtered but standing. Um, Jesus crucified and risen is what the church confesses. That's his identity in, in human history. Jesus can tell us how God is going to save the world, <laughs> how, God sa- how God saves our lives how he makes sense of the world. Um, Jesus can make sense. It's good news. It's gospel. Uh, Jesus can make sense of your life. He can, uh, he can and he, he's going to save the world. And so chapters six, is, six and seven showed the lamb um, exposing everything that was opposing God's purposes. We call this the seals. The seals are the things that are blocking God's purposes. You can't get into them, something, into God's purposes, because something's blocking them. And so seal after seal, the lamb is like just staring in the face. He's like the atrocities of the world, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, things that are blocking God's purposes. And then last week, Job, uh, Pastor Joe gave us a framework for chapters 8 and 9. Um, we saw that heaven responds to the cries for justice that come up to it and, um, and confronts evil. We saw prayers. You remember there was a, the censer right here with the incense coming up. It, all the prayers of the saints rise up to heaven before the throne, and then heaven answers and throws fire back onto the earth. Um, and this is the point, let's get really real for just a second. This is the point in Revelation where um, the onslaught of imagery just starts to like overwhelm us to the point of like, what in the world is going on? Um, and so like, we could just say it if you want just like some hooks to put, uh, to, put them on, to put the imagery on. He's using Exodus and Jericho imagery to communicate how God responds to evil is what he's doing. Um, you remember those stories, right? Uh, the, the plagues of Egypt arrive on world, evil world empire, Pharaoh, um, and shows God siding with the marginalized and the suffering, and those who are hurting, and he's overthrowing the powers of darkness. Why? Because he likes inflicting harm and such? No, he's doing it to liberate slaves so that they can be truly human, so that they can worship in freedom and in truth. And then the book of Joshua, you remember this story, the great fortress, the great city of Jericho, um, it's like stands as a symbol of uh, like opposition to God's purposes. Um, and it breaks apart when it when shouts join with sevenfold trumpet blasts. God's voice see, that arrived in Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai in trumpet blast um, seems to join with the people's voice and the uh, stronghold of evil collapses and God's people can enter into their homeland. Into their, it was enemy occupied and now it's free from enemy forces and they can, they're set free. Um, we could say it this way, God will liberate people and God will shatter evil. 
That's, the, that's what's happening in the trumpets um, that we were just in last week. That we're, that's, all of that's really important as we're coming into this week because you can get really overwhelmed with all the imagery of like uh, loc- demon locusts with human faces and really freaky stuff. Um, and you can, um, but when you do the deep dive on what's happening um, here, it's a remix tape. Remember these? It's a remix tape <laughs> of Egyptian plagues and shofars sounding in Jericho. That's what's happening. (laughs) That's the tape that's being plugged in right here. In chapters 8 and 9, that's where we are. We're on the tail end right now. We're actually still in the sixth trumpet, all of what we're about to read. Um, There's been a crazy amount of trippy imagery. There's been like the demon locust that I mentioned. There's been a fourfold angel of death coming from the Euphrates River and wiping out uh, like a third of mankind. There's been a third of land, sky, salt water, fresh water has been struck by plagues. Horses with snake tails for crying out loud. How, How terrible. Horses and fire breathing lion heads, if that wasn't bad enough. Um, that's the imagery that we're coming off the, uh, the tail end of. And then chapter 10 is where we are, starting in verse 1. The rest of humankind who weren't killed by these plagues didn't change their hearts and lives and turn from their handiwork. They didn't stop worshiping demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can't see or hear or walk. They didn't turn away from their murders, their spells and drugs, their sexual immorality, or their stealing. Can you like, that's the end of chapter nine. Can you hear like the ache in the verses right there? It's like, what in heaven's name is it going to take to bring repentance to the world? It's like the question just hanging there after all of the plagues, after the Jericho emergency. It's like it hasn't been enough. When we've all We've all felt this ache before on some level. Um, Like, I keep fighting harder and stronger. I keep, like, turning up the volume of the intensity. I keep white-knuckling it, and nothing seems to change. The situation at home or at work or with that person, on the national landscape even, between the red and the blue, the left and the right, it just doesn't seem to change. I, I, I keep bringing the heat, um, but they haven't changed their mind yet. What is it going to... Um, nobody's heart has, has changed. We, um, the questions that we ask are questions like, how do you actually affect change in the world? How, um, how does the human heart finally change. What, what, what's going to do it? Well, buckle up. Revelation's about to answer it. Uh, chapter, one, or chapter 10, verse 1. I think I misspoke earlier. That was the end of 9. Um, verse 1. Then I saw another powerful angel coming down from heaven. He was robed with a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his feet were like fiery pillars. He held an open scroll. Mm-mm-mm. He held an open scroll in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land. He called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders raised their voices. When the, th- when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. What? What? (laughs) Like, let's pause for a second. 
This is a magisterial moment right here in the book of Revelation. An angel descends from heaven. He's reflecting like in his appearance, um, if you couldn't tell, like heaven's power and authority. Like, and, and what's he carrying in his hand? The, the scroll. The scroll. That's the one that like the plot hasn't been lost. Chapter 5. We're crying over the scroll. Chapter six and seven, it's a giant blockbuster set piece as we're trying to open the scroll. And here it finally is again. It's the same scroll that we wept over. It's the same scroll that was a son of a gun to open up. It's, now it says, it actually will say in verse eight that it's open, that it's finally open, but it looks a little impre- less impressive than we might have imagined. Um, because it, it says uh, right here, John uses a word, he says, it's just a little scroll. It's just little, it's small, it's bite size. <laughs> you know, it's just, it doesn't seem like it's going to accomplish that much, does it? Uh, it doesn't look like it could save the world. It's just this diminutive little scroll. Um, the angel uh, seems to share our concern, our concern about the scroll because the angel, it's just this measly little scroll that I got in my hand. The angel comes down and what does he do? He roars, verse two, he roars like a lion. He does what most of us think should happen all of the time. You know what this situation needs? People are not repenting on the earth at the end of chapter nine. It, People are not repenting. You know what? Roar like a lion. What we need is more firepower. What we need is a firmer hand even. What we need is bigger guns. What, we need the strongest arguments that we can marshal against this. This situation will finally change when we bring in some bombing, some carpet bombing, you know? And so that... Right, fire legs, fire legs to HQ. Uh, that's, that's his name. Uh, fire legs. The, the final horseman in the seals, chapter seven, he wound up killing uh, a quarter of the earth. What was it? And then the, the death angels and the trumpets, they just killed a third of humanity. But that hasn't been enough. We are a go to deploy the big guns. Could you bring in the seven thunders? Bring in the seven thunders right now. Yeah, we'll wait. And it's like we just need to keep, he does what all of us think should happen. He just keep turning up the heat. Um, maybe one half of the earth needs to die. Maybe two thirds of the earth need to die if we follow the map. Of, that's what this angel seems to think. He lets loose a lion roar, calls for the seven thunders, and then what happens? Heaven responds with a big old, nope, we're not going to do that. That's not the way this story goes. That's not what Revelation's about. Revelation's not about ever-increasing amounts of violence or judgment or plagues or anything like that. Scratch that part out, John, is what he says in verse 4. He says, we're not doing the seven thunders part. Nope. Revelation is not about how heaven just keeps doing the same old thing over and over looking for different results. It's time for a change in tactics because the lion roar is not going to change hearts and the lion roar is not going to change the world. So what's going to is the question. Okay, well, let's keep reading. Verse five, then the angel I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and always, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it and said, the time is up. 
In the days when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious purposes will be accomplished, fulfilling the good news he gave to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the opened scroll from the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel. I told him to give me the scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make you sick to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it made my stomach churn. Well, that sure was a change of tactics, wasn't it? Instead of heaven bringing the thunder, heaven's going to share a meal with John that's going to give John the thunder. Ah, anytime you can work a fart joke in with the middle of an exegetical sermon. That's it. Okay. Done. Had to. Thanks for humoring me. Heaven has taken God's plan. Heaven has given God's plan to this angel. John has taken God's uh, plan from this angel, and he's told to eat it. God's plan to save the world has got to get inside people. Has got to get inside people. Back in chapter 5, when we were acknowledging that someone could open the scroll, we said that love willing to bleed is the one who can open the scroll. That's the lamb. The lamb is willing to bleed for the sake of love, and he can open the scroll. (laughs) Um, And so here, it's like, now it's open, and heaven's saying, okay, John, now I want it inside of you. It's going to taste sweet in your mouth. That's... Those are morsels and notes of salvation that you're tasting, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to cramp you up, too. It's going to be tough to digest. It's a, it's a strange vision, isn't it? It's, a strange, it's like the weird sort of thing that happens in a dream, you know? It seemed perfect, perfectly reasonable at the time. You know, this angel just handed me a, you know, a scroll, a book, or something, and I just ate it. You know, it's, a, it's weird. It's actually the, uh, the way that the book of Ezekiel begins, if you want, chapter, chapters 2 and 3 um, of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 2, the would-be priest, if there were still a temple left, um, Ezekiel eats God's scroll in a vision, and then once this scroll that's written on the front and the back, by the way, um, gets inside of him, he's finally able to tell everyone about it. He's finally able to tell everyone what God wants to say. That's what the entire rest of the book of Ezekiel is about. The same thing's happening right here in John's crazy dream. Um, Get this thing inside of you, John. This scroll (laughs) written on both sides. It needs to get inside of you. We don't need the lion's firepower to work the world over. What we need is the lamb's scroll to work you over, John. We need this to get inside of you. And I will show you what my purposes are in the world. Because we're in the end game now, John. We are in the days, verse 7. We're in the days of the seventh trumpet, is what it says. We are about to see. God's purposes unfold. Like right now, they're about to unfold without delay. The plan that God has to save the world works its way into the world, John, by working its way into you. Get it in you, John. And now what comes next is really, really important. If you can follow it, 
if you can follow it, then um, if we can grasp the transition from chapter 10 to 11, we are well on our way to understanding the whole of Revelation, okay? So buckle up with me. So chapter 10, verse 11, uh, get the scroll into you, and then I was told after I ate it, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Verse 1, then I was given a measuring rod, which was like a pole, and I was told, get up and measure God's temple, the altar, and those who worship there, but don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, because it has been given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months. This is another image, by the way, from the book of Ezekiel. This is time from the end of the book of Ezekiel. Um, It's a measuring where Ezekiel measures the future beat-all, end-all temple of God, is chapters 40 through like 48. Um, This is a clue right here, that weird transition. Eat the scroll. And then I saw a measuring rod, and I was measuring the temple. John has started telling us what the scroll is about. Grasp that. If you can grasp that, the whole book of Revelation begins to like unlock. Um, We've been wondering, what's in the scroll? What's God's plan to save the world? He's telling us. I was given a measuring rod. And he finally starts telling us what's in the scroll. And he starts immediately talking about getting pounded and being protected is what he starts. Did you notice that? Like the the temple is going to be, measure the temple, the inside. The outside is going to take a pounding, but the inside is protected. That's what he just said right there, that the the nations are going to trample the outside of the temple, even the the city around it. And he's speaking symbolically here. He's not talking, Jerusalem has probably already been sacked, the temple destroyed by the time John's writing this. He's talking symbolically right here. Um, he's, He's saying, you know, you need to communicate this, and let's communicate it in pictures. It's like a temple protected on the outside and being pounded on the outside. Or maybe another picture. Verse 3, he shifts to another picture. And I will allow my two witnesses to prophesy for 1,260 days. That's the same as 42 months, by the way. That's the same as three and a half years, if you want to know. This is clues that all of these things are the same thing. Uh, he's He's giving us different pictures to talk about the same thing. These, my two witnesses, are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to hurt them, fire comes out of their mouth and burns up their enemies. So if anyone wants to hurt them, they have to be killed in this way. They have the power to close up the sky so that no rain will fall as long as they prophesy. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with any plague as often as they wish. When they have finished their witnessing, the beast that comes up from the abyss will make war on them, gain victory over them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie on the street of, that great si- of the great city that is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. That was Jerusalem. Um, this is not 
a single city. This is a symbolic city, right? It's in Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem are not the same place. Um, and for three and a half days, members of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will look at their dead bodies, but they won't let their dead bodies be put in a tomb. Those who live on the earth will rejoice over them. They will celebrate and give each other gifts because these two prophets had brought such pain to those who live on earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear came over those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven say to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. Pause. This is an intricate, this is a genius, intricate, sophisticated little story that has been, it's, people do PhDs over this, the, the, this sort of stuff, and so it's complicated. Um, it really is. Uh, we could say, it, it, we don't have time to go into a lot of detail on it, but we could say it this way, if you want to know how sophisticated what he's doing is. John eats a scroll like, Isaiah, like Ezekiel that shows a metaphor from Zechariah sprinkled with Moses and Elijah imagery fulfilling prophecies to Daniel. You can take a snapshot of that with your picture, with your camera if you want. Um, that's a snap, snapshot under the hood. And um, I, you don't really have to wrap your head around that because um, you can snap a picture if, if you want to look it up later. Um, but it's re we really just said that. Um, it's going to come back up. We said that so that we could say it in a little bit plainer English. Um, we could say it this way. John internalizes God's purposes that show the witness of God's people faithfully following, like Moses and Elijah, lamb-like love to bring about the kingdom of God. That's what he's seeing right here. John, like, he has this vision, and he's raiding his verbal warehouse of, like, how do I communicate this, the significance of this in the most profound way? Like, and so he plugs in, like, it's not a little cassette. This is, like, cassette after cassette of remix tapes that he's plugging in, prophecies and stories and images and all of his language to communicate the content of the scroll, He's communicating what God's purposes are in the world. And just like we saw love willing to bleed was able to open the scroll, now we see love willing to bleed embodied in the church. That's the point of what he's seeing. That's the point of what he's saying. That's the point of the book of Revelation. Um, John tells us the story of two witnesses. It's an image from Zechariah. For God's people, lampstands, olive trees. These, the witness of God's people is, living, is willing to live and die, faithfully proclaiming truth. <laughs> and what is the truth that's given in the book of Revelation? The lamb! The lamb slaughtered but standing. Jesus crucified and risen, love willing to bleed, sits on the throne. Best I can tell, based on like the homework that I've done on this, and I have done my homework on this, um, Revelation 11 gives us like a stylized thumbnail sketch of the church's task in history. That's what Revelation 11 is about. It's saying for some period of time, symbolically embodied in 
days, months, years, like however you want to say it. There's some symbolic period of time. It's not forever. It's not seven. It's only half of seven in which the, the church is going to point the world to the Lamb, to Jesus, crucified and risen. He's gonna, we're going to point in word and deed to the Lamb. The fire coming from these witnesses' mouths, verse 5, is just as symbolic as the sword coming out of Jesus's mouth earlier and later in the book. That's what it is. We're not talking about literal fire breathing any more than we're talking about a literal monster coming out of a literal black hole, abyss, in the middle of the ocean. The imagery that John is using right here, he's saying that the church's proclamation of self-giving love is powerful. It is as miraculous as anything that Moses or Elijah ever did. It is when the, de- when the church embodies deeds of love and mercy and truth in the world, it is biblical proportions we're talking about here. What changes the world, what saves the world, is when the church faithfully witnesses to the self-giving love of the Lamb. That's what's happening. This is the climax of Revelation, the middle of it, even when it's hard. Self-giving love. Especially when it's hard. Self-giving love. Even when the world despises truth. Self-giving love. Even when the world hates forgiveness and mercy and Forgiveness and mercy seem overpowered by hatred and violence, self-giving love. Even when it looks like self-giving love is dead in the streets and and decaying and hasn't even been given a proper funeral, self-giving love, you keep on loving. When they go low, yes, yes, even when they go low, we go high. We we love self-giving sacrificially, even when they spread lies. Yes, even when they spread lies, we speak truth. We go, we give of ourselves self-giving love, even when doing the right thing might bring pain to someone. Verse 10, when it feels like in the words of Romans, like hot coals are being put on someone's head because they don't want the right thing to be done. And it's like hurting people who don't want truth. Even then, self-giving love. Even when people kill and gloat and boast over us, we heal we serve. We sacrifice. That's what the church does, even when it means our discomfort, our embarrassment, our career, our becoming witnesses to death. Martures, the two witnesses, the two martyrs is what they are. Even when we have to become martyrs, we, the church, are called to follow the Lamb wherever He goes in self-giving love. We are the witnesses. We are the witnesses. The church yeah, it's good news. We get to do it. We, we share the life of Jesus even when it costs our lives to love. We love. We love. We love some more. Roaring like a lion doesn't change anything. Loving like the lamb changes everything is what Revelation is saying. Loving like the lamb is how the world gets changed. It's how hearts get changed. Because I didn't read the final verse right here. Uh, Verse 13 of this tiny little parable. At that hour, 
there was a great earthquake. This is the Jericho moment, by the way, right? When the walls come tumbling down, when the whole city is going to fall apart and collapse. Um, there's a great earthquake. Great! Evil's going to fall. A tenth, a tenth, a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed by the earthquake, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And this is the moment in the, in the trumpets. We're, we're like right on the verge of the seventh trumpet. We would expect Jericho to be falling completely, for the, the great city to just be utterly shattered and fall apart. But the biggest surprise of all fall unfolds before us. Only one-tenth of the city, a tithe, of the city falls, a symbolically small amount. Um, that's pretty good when you can save nine-tenths of Jericho, isn't it? That's a pretty good day. Only 7,000 people die. Not a quarter of humanity, not a third of humanity. It's actually a symbolically s- a small number. It was it, Back in the Elijah story, it's uh, the, the number in 1 Kings 18, it's the small number of people that God has reserved for him, himself. It's the number of the remnant. 7,000 people is very small, and only 7,000 people die die. A super small number of people die. They cling to darkness to the bitter end, but everyone else winds up repenting. Everyone else gets saved. Everyone else gives glory to God. They finally wind, they finally re- repent. It's The question's been, what's going to make the human heart repent? Well, it seems like carrying the cross in love actually finally accomplishes what the unleashing the plagues of Egypt in judgment couldn't. The plagues of Egypt can't accomplish what carrying the cross does. Repentance is what we see unfolding. Hearts softening, people turning. This is how the world changes. Hear this, it wasn't a show of strength that accomplished change in the world. It was a show of weakness, of vulnerability, of self-giving love to the very end. The situation has not been changed by bombing. It will be changed by bleeding. When someone is willing to bleed like Jesus, to love even when it's costly, that is what changes the world. That's God's secret plan on the scroll. That's what John's vision wants us to see. That is the revelation of Revelation. (laughs) You want to know how you could summarize Revelation in one sentence? I'll give it to you. Heaven bleeds love into us through Jesus, and Jesus bleeds love into the world through us. You want to know what will change the world? You want to know what, when, when, we're willing, when we are willing to bleed in love, that will change the world. That's what, change, that's what changes people's hearts and minds. From the like, smallest, most personal, to the biggest and political. Like on a personal level, maybe it's your fam, a family member. Like a, um, a coworker, a boss, a, um, a neighbor, and you're, you're thinking, you know what? Nothing is changing. I think it's time. I think I'm just going to pull the ripcord. I'm just going to like let the, that's not the right thing. That's a parachute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press the button, whatever. And I'm going to flip the switch. I'm going to drop the bombs is what I'm going to do. A good bombing is going to change the situation. It won't. A gl- good bleeding might. 
<laughs> like, are you willing to bleed in love for that person? Not be a doormat. We're not talking about staying in an abusive situation. We're talking about doing the hard work of working for their good, even when it's costly. Like, on the biggest of levels, like politics, we eventually start thinking, whether we're on the left or the right, we start thinking, things have not changed because we haven't been ugly enough. We need to fight fire with fire. But the truth is, for God, even even for God, changing the world takes time. Even for God, even for God, changing the world requires bleeding in love for others. So whatever it is you're passionate about right now, really important things, whether it's the rights of the unborn or racism embedded in our systems or what we're doing to the environment, like whatever it is that you're passionate about, the second that we depart from love in our fighting for that cause, we have destroyed whatever it is we're fighting for. Like, we, we have become the beast that we hate. We have become the beast rising out of the abyss that we are trying to resist. We are not called to brutalize the other side. We're called to bleed for the other side for the sake of the world. So may the, do that this political season. Um, I mean, that's the gospel. That's the gospel, isn't it? God bleeds for us even while we're dead wrong. Even, even while we are enemies of him, he dies for us. We gaze at Jesus and we see heaven bleeding love into us. And so no matter, you know, the band can come on up. Um, we could say it this way. No matter what you've done, no matter where you are, God loves you. God loves you. You can look at Jesus on the cross, dying in love for you, and know that. Some of us have got this idea in our heart that, like, if we don't love God enough, then God isn't going to love us. We've got to somehow secure love in God. Can I tell you this morning, you are loved already. You are valuable already. You are important to God already. We could say it this way, fearing God might succeed in changing you. It might for a second. It, it might make you a slave if it succeeds in changing. Loving God will succeed in changing you. It's going to make you a child. And so the only way that you become a child is when you receive God's love into you. When you look at the God willing to bleed for you and say, oh, I finally get it. Fill me with your love. Make me like you. That's what we're doing as we come to this table. As we come to this table that Joe is going to lead us to in just a second, we gaze at Jesus willing to die for us to make us free. And so I invite you to stand with me. And you can go ahead and prepare your, the communion elements. Jesus, the one broken so that we could be put together, the one bled, so that we could be made whole. We ask that you would fill us up with your life so that we can spread that life into those that are difficult. We ask that you would fill up those around us so that they can spread your life into us when we are difficult. 
we ask that you would make us like you for the sake of your world because we are your witnesses and we can't do it without your spirit. And so come spirit, fill us up, transform us, make us like you. And we look forward to watching you save the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.